Please be seated. There's nothing like having to mop up after the previous campus minister, Heidi. Right? Yeah. Just be glad he didn't plant a church in your town. He'd be preaching all summer. Just kidding, I'm kidding. I love Brandon. I'm glad to be here. And if you listen to the story, it wasn't the previous campus minister's fault at all, just to make sure. Um, please open your Bibles. It's our, uh, my pleasure to be here again fourth week and, and last week. And Dawn and I will be leaving town for about five weeks after uh, on Wednesday, so, um, which means I can get away with anything today. Um, open your Bibles to Micah, uh, the prophet Micah, chapter 6. should be 779, I believe, in your uh, pew Bibles. Uh, Micah, the prophet, is speaking to the, the tribe of Judah, or the kingdom of Judah, at a time, again, as we've seen um, repeatedly, where there is unbelief and unfaithfulness to God taking place. Um, and here we have sort of a courtroom setting, an indictment from the Lord against his people. But I want you to listen to carefully, carefully as we read uh, the first eight verses of Micah, of how God makes his case, how he reasons with his people, how he motivates them to bring the kingdom to participate with him in that. Um, we'll read, I'll tell you a story, which you're wondering why I'm telling you the story after I pray, and then we'll focus in on verse 8, which says, What does the Lord require of you but to do justice, love, kindness, and walk humbly with your God? Um, but starting at chapter 6, verse 1, the prophet Micah. Hear what the Lord says. Arise, plead your case before the mountains, and let the hills hear your voice. Hear you mountains, the indictment of the Lord, and you enduring foundations of the earth, for the Lord has an indictment against his people, and he will contend with Israel. O oh, my people, what have I done to you? How have I wearied you? Answer me, for I brought you up from the land of Egypt and redeemed you from the house of slavery, and I sent before you Moses, Aaron, and Miriam, O oh, my people, remember what Balak, king of Moab, devised, and what Balaam, the son of Beor, answered him, and what happened from Shittim to Gilgal, that you may know the saving acts of the Lord. With what shall I come before the Lord, and bow myself before God on high? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with ten thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God? Uh, let's pray and then we'll, we'll dig in. Lord God, we pray that you would open our ears and our eyes, that you would demonstrate to us through your word your grace unto us, that our lives might be transformed. And we pray this in the strong name of Jesus. Amen. Um, there was a doctor who lived in Victorian England. His name was Frederick Trevis. And um, if you know anything about Victorian England, you might know um, that something called freak peeping uh, was a common practice. And I want to read to you uh, uh, a little passage here from a, a book called uh, The Elephant Man, A Study in Human Dignity. In Victorian England, freak peeping 
was an accepted form of entertainment. For two pence, you could have a good look at a heavy-headed dwarf, a bearded lady, or a pair of Siamese twins. Okay, what I've just described is, is basically a freak show. And at that time, it was common where you could pay money and you could go in and you could see um, people, human beings, in the image of God, uh, on display for money because of their various uh, genetic oddities. And a doctor, Frederick Trevis, one day walked out of his hospital, was crossing the street, and he looked and he saw a sign that said Elephant Man. So he paid his two pence, he went in, wanted to see what this was all about. He walked into a room, and there stood a man, and next to the man, a cloak over a, a lump. He didn't know what. And when everyone gathered in and sat down, he pulled down the cloak, and there stood a man completely naked. And listen to Frederick Trevis's description of this man. The most striking feature about him was his enormous and misshaped head. From the brow there projected a huge bony mass like a loaf, while from the back of his head hung a bag of spongy, fungus-looking skin, the surface of which was comparable to brown cauliflower. The osseous growth on the forehead almost occluded one eye. The circumference of the head was no less than that of a man's waist. From the upper jaw there projected another mass of bone. It protruded from the mouth like a pink stump, hence the nickname Elephant Man. It turned his upper lip out and made his mouth a mere slobbering aperture. This growth from the jaw had been so exaggerated in the painting as to appear to be a rudimentary trunk or tusk. The nose was merely a lump of flesh, only recognizable as a nose from its position. The face was no more capable of expression than a block of gnarled wood. So he couldn't, he couldn't, make, he couldn't smile, he couldn't grimace, his face was just locked. The back was horrible, because from it hung, as far down as the middle of his thigh, the uh, same huge sack-like mass of flesh, covered by the same loathsome cauliflower skin. The right arm was of enormous size and shapeless. It suggested the limb of the subject of elephantitis. It was overgrown, also with pendant masses of the same cauliflower-like skin. The hand was large and clumsy, like a fin or a paddle rather than a hand. The thumb had the appearance of a radish, while the fingers might have been thick, tuberous roots. As a limb, it was nearly useless. The other arm was remarkable by contrast. It was not only normal, but was delicately shaped with a beautiful hand which any woman might have envied. Interesting little fact. From the chest hung a bag of the same repulsive flesh. It was like a dewlap suspended from the neck of a lizard. The lower limbs had the characters of the deformed arm. They were unwieldy, dropsical-looking, and grossly misshapen. To add a further burden to his trouble, the wretched man, when a boy, developed hip disease which had left him permanently lame so that he could only walk with a stick. One other feature must be mentioned to emphasize his isolation from his kind. Although he was already repellent enough, there arose from the fungus skin growth which, which, with which he was almost covered a very sickening stench, which was hard to tolerate. So in walks Trevis. And he sees this man, and he said, I thought to myself, I hope he is an imbecile and cannot think so that he doesn't know what's happening to him right now. 
But Frederick Trevis spoke, and the man he would later know as Joseph Merrick spoke back, not in a word, but in a mere grunt. And he thought, I want that man. And so he bought him. He paid for him. He bought the place out first, mostly out of a medical sense of interest. Just wanted to study this man. Trevis was a surgeon, and he thought I could help him. And so he bought him. He took him. He rescued him, and he took him into a hospital. He operated on him, and over the period of years, came to know him as a friend. He rescued him. He rescued a slave. He rescued a man that was despicable to the rest of the world, that no one would even want to stand near, much less take into their own home. Why am I telling you this story? Verse 4. God says to his people who are in rebellion, so he makes his case, verse 4, I brought you from the land of Egypt and redeemed you from the house of slavery. He says to them, remember who you were. Don't you remember my people who were not living as I've called you to live? Don't you remember who you were? You were despised. You were treated with indignity. You were slaves. And no one wanted you, but I did. And I brought you out. I set you free. I saved you. I rescued you. I love you. More than that, more than the rescue from slavery, I sent before you Moses, Aaron, Aaron and Miriam. Verse 5. Oh, my people. He's still claiming them. Remember what Balak king of Moab devised and what Balaam the son of Beor answered him and what happened from Shittim to Gilgal that you may know the saving acts of the Lord. He's reminding them with these key terms, these key names, these key places. He's saying, remember everything that happened from Egypt to the promised land, how I was with you, how I rescued you, made you my people, and protected you to bring you into this land where the people now were. And why was he bringing them into the land? Remember, Israel was supposed to be the haven of all creation, the place that was safe for the rest of the world, to be a blessing to all the nations of the world from the very beginning, to be a place of truth and justice and righteousness and mercy. And yet it had become a place of corruption. And so he says, remember, remember my mercy, remember my grace to you. Don't you know who you are? And so Micah puts in the mouth of a would-be worshiper, you know, what, Lord, what do you want from me? Do you want rivers of oil? Do you want my firstborn son? Do you want my acts of religiousness to appease you? Let me go to church every Sunday and check the things off the list. He says, no. He's told you, O man, verse 8, and this is our key verse. He has told you, O man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love, as some translations say, to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. Okay, so three things. What, in light of God's grace to the people, in light of God's grace to us in Jesus Christ, when we were worthless, when we were ugly, when we were despised, when we were covered in our own stench and filth of our sins, who came down to rescue us from that. If you're a believer, that is you. Three things. Very simple. Do justly, love mercy, walk humbly. First, do justly. What does that mean? What does it mean to do justice or to do justly? There's a, sort of a broad sense and a narrow sense to this word. It, uh, broadly, it basically means that you, that you are doing good. 
But you do what is right. You do what is just. You do what is truthful. And narrowly, it, it has a connotation. And I think what Micah has in mind is, is he has already indicted the people for social injustices, um, economic oppression that's taking place in Israel that has that, that's, that more narrow uh, point to it of doing justice, bringing about goodness where injustice is taking place. which is what Israel was called to be. From the very beginning, from Abraham, when the promise to him, he was to be a blessing to all the nations. And the promised land was to be a place where injustice was, oppre- was put down and justice was built up, where what is done uh, is set, where wrongdoing is set right. I was speaking with a friend of mine recently, and he had gone to um, a conference put on by a a ministry called International Justice Mission. You may have heard of it. And basically the mission of International Justice Mission is to go uh, both here and abroad, but but their more more prominent known ministries are are done abroad where they actually enter into places where oppression is taking place, where people are being sold into slavery literally, um, where people are being oppressed, where people are being held in prison wrongfully, and they, they work through the justice system uh, to, to let people go. The lawyers, uh, it's a, a huge endeavor. Um, and my friend was at this conference. It was actually a prayer conference for the ministry. It's a Christian ministry. And he said there was at one point um, in which they were telling some of the stories about these men who were basically um, the Christian Jack Bowers. They're Christian commandos who literally will at times break into brothels and rescue slaves who have, been, who have been placed into the sex slave trade. They'll go in, they'll find them, they'll take them, and they'll get them out, and they'll get them to safety at the risk of their own necks. And someone from up front said, we didn't realize this at the beginning, but we have about 20 of those men here today. Would you please stand up? And those men stood up and came forward, and it was a large conference, and he just said that the eruption of applause from the people was overwhelming. He said, Ben, it wasn't until that moment that I just realized what is taking place in the world. And the sense of being connected to that and seeing believers who are doing something about it. Of bringing justice where there is injustice. Now we may ask the question, what does that have to do with me? Um, I don't have any special ops training. Uh, I don't think I'm going to be... parachuting into brothels and busting people out. Um, often we ask the question, what does that have to do with me when we think about these, these big issues? And that's, a, that's an appropriate question, but perhaps a better question to ask is not, what does that have to do with me, but what do I have to do with that? Not, what does that have to do with me, but what do I have to do with that? As God's people, we are called on a global scale, to partake in the setting of things right because of the mercy of God given to us. And that could take a variety of shapes and forms. Um, it could simply be financial participation in these things. It could be your prayers, which are, that's not a trivial thing. That's a big deal. Someone just handed me a card to pray for a student who will be at VBS this week, and I will do that because I think it's meaningful, not because it's my Christian duty alone, because it matters, and God answers prayers. But it's to be aware it's to know. Uh, some friends of mine uh, recently, uh, I guess it was about two years ago, went to a, a WIC conference, Women in the Church in Atlanta. 
And an emphasis that, that week at the WIC conference was on social justice, on the sex slave trade in particular. And the women, that are friends of mine, came back from that, some of them very inspired and wanting to know how they could help, and others said this, and it made me very sad. They said, you know, I don't want to hear about all that nasty stuff. Paraphrasing. But they said, you know, I, I don't want to hear, they, well, it's not really paraphrasing. They said, I really don't want to hear about that. I want to know kind of how to be uh, a better suburban mom. And that's a legitimate desire. Of course, any mother who lives in the suburbs wants to be a better suburban mom and follow Christ in, in, in all the ways that are noble and right and good in the home. Um, but we certainly can't say that. We certainly can't say, you know, I'd rather not know about that. And that has nothing to, what is that to do with me? Rather, the question is, what do I have to do with that? That is a hard calling. It's a, it's a hard question to deal with, especially in this global age in which we live. When Micah wrote this to his original audience, you know, the people that you could see were basically the people that you knew about, right? You might hear news from lands far off, but in terms of your practical ability as an individual person, but now things have just been blown open through technology, through communication, through interconnectedness across the globe. And the game has changed, and it's a hard question. I don't propose to have a simple answer, but it's one we have to ask. Because what does the Lord require of you but to do justice? But at the same time, there is also the broad sense. I know we're not all called to be Christian Jack Bowers. We're not all called to parachute. There's a, a general sense of doing what is right and what is good. And it may not cost you your life like these men who break into brothels, but it might cost you your job. And I wish I heard and knew more stories of Christians losing their jobs for doing the right thing. I recently uh, heard a breakdown of the men involved uh, with the Enron scandal, with the accounting fraud that took place, where basically they were robbing from America in order to get rich. Um, according to the information I received, and this is published information, there were five deacons, five Baptist deacons, four Presbyterian elders, three Anglican lay leaders, and two guys from the Church of God. I don't know what their officers are called. All of whom were involved at one level or another with the Enron scandal. Now we could argue, you know, who, who were they? What were they like? But those were just the church officers, not just people who profess Christ. Those are frightening things. And, and it, there are times when doing justice requires sacrifice on our part. And it may happen to you. But the Lord has done right by you, has he not? The Lord has done right to us in his grace and his mercy. And so this is not just something that we feel like, oh no, I have to do even though I don't want to. But there's a sense in which, uh, as my friend who applauded these heroes, in that moment he realized, yes, this is who I am. And this is something that I want to be a part of in some way or another I want to be like God. I want to be a person of justice because he has been kind to me. Or it could be in, the, in, the, in all the micro ways in our lives. There's the big, the big scandals like Enron and the big issues like social justice, but there are the simple things of our daily speech and talk where we attribute dignity, where dignity is deserved, where we give credit, where credit is due, where in our speech, in our honesty, as opposed to slander or cynicism, where we speak truthfully and rightly, where we make the world in our conversations a little bit more like the way it's supposed to be. Justice is basically making the world a little more the way it's supposed to be. And that's part of our calling. It's part of what repentance, as we've been looking at the last three weeks, what repentance will then look like. But moving on. 
do justice. Also, love mercy or love kindness. And that word mercy has to do, whereas justice is about giving people what they do deserve, mercy has a connotation of giving people what they don't deserve in a positive way, though. Uh, Something that they haven't earned that's not necessarily theirs, that you don't necessarily owe to them, but yet you give it to them. I know my students struggle with this in the classroom. Uh, The university environment is geared towards an individualist self-interest. The whole academic structure is for me studying for my stuff so I can get my grade. And if the guy sitting next to me, whether he's my best friend, my roommate, or someone I've never met, if he fails, so be it. That's his problem. Why should I help him? Well, that's exactly the point. Why should you help him? He doesn't deserve it, but it's mercy. He doesn't deserve it. Why should you? But that's the point. But also in the general sense of kindness, and in this sense, justice and mercy overlapped, or justice and kindness there are ways in which we can be involved. All of us have opportunities to show kindness, to show mercy to people around us. Um, the church recently has begun a new mercy ministry team. And we as a church are moving forward and taking steps in these directions, asking some of these hard questions of how do, does this body of believers here at Grace Covenant, how are we going to be involved in the acts of justice and mercy in the world? Uh, one simple way where you could where you could say, what, is this, what do I have to do with this, uh, would be in the yellow insert in your bulletin that sticks out like a sore thumb. Um, there's a line there that says, I am interested in, colon, Mercy Ministry, or Bethany Christian Services, which is uh, an adoption agency that helps do justice to unborn children and would-be uh, aborted children or orphaned children. Those are small ways, and I'm not, don't all of us check it at once, because we, it says do mercy, so we should all be on the mercy ministry team. Not necessarily, but that's one uh, small way in which you could be involved. Um, recently, I, I told you the story about my friend Tim in Alabama who destroyed his friend's Jeep, and then uh, you know, was a complete knucklehead. If you were here two weeks ago, you heard that story. So I thought I would uh, give, give Tim a little justice and tell a good story about him. Uh, he's now a senior pastor in Alabama, and uh, he recently received a phone call that a woman in his church had, uh, who was on welfare uh, was in the emergency room with her son, and her son was in pain. He'd had a procedure done, and he wasn't given the proper medicine when he went home, and he was just in excruciating pain. And she had been there for uh, over an hour and a half, uh, actually in one of the rooms in the ER, and, and hadn't been addressed yet. And as you know, if you work in medicine at all, oftentimes the ER can get bogged down with with simple issues for people because they're not allowed legally to refuse service. So people will come in with the flu or with a cold. And perhaps it was something where they didn't, weren't intentionally neglecting her and her son, um, but they just didn't know what was going on. So Tim got a call from someone in the church that she was there. He raced to the church. He knew a doctor that worked at the hospital. And he came into the room, and he grabbed a nurse, and he said, I want this woman's son taken care of in 15 minutes or less. And I know Dr. Johnson or whoever. Get it done said in 10 minutes there was one doctor and three nurses attending to this, uh, this woman's son who had had an operation the day before and who was in excruciating pain. He had mercy and he did what he was able to do. Now, not all of us will have the opportunity to be the hero like Tim who runs into the hospital and sets things right. Uh, but there are little opportunities. But there's something difficult here. Uh, Micah sort of, I don't know if you noticed it, but he sort of ups the ante from the do justice Because listen to what he says. He says, do justice and to love kindness or love mercy. I asked my friend Tim, and he said I could quote him. Well, he said I could say uh, how he actually reacted. I said, Tim, um, 
when you get, when you had the opportunity to do this, when you got that phone call, were you excited to do it? Were you glad to go? And he said, ah, no. And I won't say exactly what he said, but when he got off the phone, he said he hung up the phone and he was like, oh, great. I've got to go to the hospital and take care of this kid. He had that knee-jerk reaction because it's much it's very easy to kind of do justice and do mercy where we have the opportunities at times, though it may be costly, but to love it. To love it. Mike is asking us for something that requires a change of heart, that requires real transformation to delight in it. We'll keep moving forward. To do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. To walk humbly. So I guess we could say if justice has to do with giving people what they do deserve and mercy has to do with giving people what they don't deserve, uh, walking humbly has to do with recognizing that I don't deserve. What I don't deserve. And there's a sense in which walking humbly is the easiest of the three, isn't it? Because doing, doing justice could get you killed or fired. Loving mercy is going to cost you money at least, most likely. Um, walking humbly is simple because you can do that in a closet, right? You can do that in your home and you can just be nice and pious and sweet and say your prayers and, and tell God you're humble and he'll believe you. <laughs> and uh, so will everyone else. It's easy to fake because we can make self-deprecating comments and people will say, oh, wow, he doesn't think so highly of himself. That's great. Um, it doesn't necessarily require doing anything, and yet it's the hardest. It's the easiest of the three, but it's the hardest of the three. And here's why it's the hardest. Uh, one reason it's the hardest is the moment you start to understand that you're humble, you suddenly become prideful about that. Um, <laughs> but another reason why it's going to be hard um, especially for, for many of us here, is that many of us here are extremely successful people. If you've, if you've accomplished something, if you've, if you've got a degree from Brown or from William & Mary, I'm not picking on Eddie, he's my friend. Um, if you've gotten somewhere at some level, you live in the United States of America where if you, if you work hard and you do what you need to do, you will succeed, and you'll be great. And the danger, that's a wonderful thing, of course, but the danger of that is that it can be very easy to suddenly not have that humility. Again, Micah is asking not just for outward acts of obedience, but real transformation in the heart of the people. And how does that happen? It happens in two ways. One, it happens of knowing who you are of knowing who you are. Uh, back to the elephant man. Again, in the story of the elephant man, we're the elephant man. That's us. That's me. That's you. The filthy, deformed, smelly, unlovely sinner. And as I said before, at first Travis was interested in this man, Joseph Merrick, uh, simply for medical curiosity. But he found, uh, as he hoped before, that he was an imbecile. He found that he was not. I'll read another section uh, from Studying Human Dignity. In fact, Trevis, this is 
speaking back to when he first saw him, Trevis hoped that Merrick was an imbecile, shunned like a leper, housed like a wild beast, his only view of the world from a peephole in a showman's cart. It seemed unthinkable that he could also appreciate his condition, but Merrick did. So at that moment when he saw him, he knew very well exactly what was happening to him. Trevis was to discover that he possessed an acute sensibility and, worse than all, a romantic imagination. He loved poetry. He loved to read. He loved music. The disease from which he suffered had not attacked his brain. He had a normal wish to love and to be loved. And over the years, as Trevis became his friend, he began not only to work on him medically, but to introduce him to society, to introduce him to his friends, to introduce him to women who before had been repelled, now having learned through their friend Frederick Trevis that this was a man, would come in and at least just have a conversation with him and speak to him and be his friend. says here, it was the beginning of a new life for a man who, although continually in pain, was soon to reveal a passion for literature, theater, and music, and to show his own artistic talent. His life was becoming transformed through the friendship of this one man. And though he was continually in pain, only weeks before he died of his own condition, uh, Joseph Merrick was quoted saying this, I am happy every hour of the day. He said, I am happy every hour of the day. Why? Because for the first time in his life, this man who had been holed up knew what it meant to love and be loved. And that's just the love of one human being to another. Imagine the transformation that takes place when you know that you've been loved by the Almighty that you've been shown mercy. That is where humility comes from, of knowing who you are. But not only that, of knowing who he is, knowing who Christ is, who has saved you. It take us a few pages back to Micah chapter 5 and verse 2. But you, but you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, you who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be the ruler in Israel, whose origins is from of old, from ancient days. What do I bring that up? It's the promise of the Messiah. It's the promise of the coming Christ who would be the ruler of Israel, the great Davidic king for which the people longed. And where did he come from? Like it says, from you, Bethlehem. Bethlehem, you're too small to even be among the clans of Judah. You're a little two-bit town. You have one stoplight. But the king of Israel, the savior, the one who rescues us, himself came from humble beginnings, from a humble place. He did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. Verse 4. And he shall stand, the Messiah, and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of of the Lord his God, and they shall dwell secure, for now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he shall be their peace. The humble king comes and establishes his kingdom. 
as his people are transformed and in part as they do justly, love mercy, and walk humbly with him because of who they are and because of who he is. And so comes the kingdom. May it be so in Williamsburg, Virginia. May it be so on the campus of Brown University and the campus of William and Mary. May it happen in part as we follow our Savior and humble King, Jesus. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for your mercy to us. You have been so kind. Lord, may we see your grace freshly so that our lives will be different, that we will be changed, and that we will be your agents in this world while we have time. We ask this in your name. Amen. Let's stand together and sing.